If you want to go to your Bible and uh, turn to Luke chapter 23, I have a message for you tonight entitled, The Cross and the Conscript. In one of his books, Dr. Erwin Lutzer wrote about being on an airplane and giving a compliment to a young lady who was sitting next to him about a beautiful cross necklace that she was wearing. He said, I see that you're wearing a cross, and I really appreciate that. We have a wonderful Savior, don't we? And then he said that the lady turned to him, rolled her eyes, and rebuked, saying, I don't think you understand the cross like I do. Look at this. And then the woman proceeded to show Dr. Lutzer behind the cross was a Jewish star of David. And then there was a trinket on that necklace for the Hindu god Om. And then also was the Egyptian Ankh for eternal life there as well. And the lady explained, she said, I'm in social work and I found that as you talk to people, there are many different ways to what we might call God. And she said, Christianity is just one path to the divine. I think that story reminds us that the cross of Christ is still widely misunderstood today. Uh, there are many who wear the cross as a piece of fashionable jewelry, and yet uh, they would be deeply offended if they knew the true message behind it, namely that Jesus is not just a way to God or uh, the best way to God, but He's the only way to God. Uh, so love it or despise it, uh, one cannot remain neutral about the cross. Uh, there are a wide array of interpretations and opinions in the world about the cross. If you open Islam's holy book, the Quran, uh, you will soon find that the Quran claims that there never was a cross, that Jesus was not crucified. Uh, that's found in their Surah 4, 157. And then there is Gandhi, who uh, once entertained Christianity and thought the person of Christ uh, to be a great example, but... Gandhi said this, Jesus' death on the cross was a great example to the world, but that there was anything like a mysterious or miraculous virtue in it, he said, my heart could not accept it. And then we think about skeptics like Friedrich Nietzsche. He was that German philosopher writing around the turn of the 20th century. Uh, his writings went on to influence Adolf Hitler greatly. He coined the phrase, God is dead, and in one of his books, he remarked that, quote, the God on the cross is a curse on life. And then we come now to the modern day and we see how celebrities and entertainers adopt the cross. A few years ago, uh, the pop star Madonna performed several concerts in which the crescendo of her show was her featured on a cross where she underwent a mocking crucifixion while wearing a crown of thorns. Now all of these differing opinions and interpretations of the cross just merely reinforce what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1 in verse 23. He said, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, and foolishness or folly to the Gentiles. 
And so the world doesn't understand the cross. The world doesn't accept the cross. And the world can't get its mind around how the death of a Jewish carpenter some 2,000 years ago can bring life and hope to so many. Well, if there was one man who was present at Calvary, the cross changed everything for this man. His name was Simon of Cyrene. And admittedly, uh, we don't know a whole lot about him, but what we do know is quite significant. Uh, for a brief moment, he steps on to the stage of God's salvation drama. He plays his part, and then he leaves, never to be mentioned again by name by any of the Bible writers. Of course, you know that Simon's claim to fame was that he helped a battered and bleeding and burdened Jesus carry the cross the rest of the way to Golgotha's hill. If you have your place in Luke chapter 23, if you'll go down to verse 26, you'll find that Luke writes the following about this man Simon, saying, And as they led him away, they seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And so in this message, what I endeavor to do is examine this scene and examine this character of Simon and how he carried what you might call or what seemed to be an accidental cross. And I think that tonight God has at least four lessons to show us from the encounter that Simon had with Jesus on the way to Calvary. So number one, if you're taking notes, I want you to see what I call the sudden predicament of the cross. The sudden predicament of the cross. Now as his name implies, Simon wasn't a Jerusalem native. Uh, the Bible says he was from Cyrene, which is in modern day Libya. In fact, about 800 miles away from Jerusalem. And apparently Simon was like so many of those thousands of Jewish pilgrims who had traveled to Jerusalem to observe the Passover. And it's very likely that that is why he took that long journey to come into the city. He came to Jerusalem to enjoy a holiday. Uh, the furthest thing from his mind was to get entangled in the political circus that was going on in which Pilate condemned Jesus to death by crucifixion. And so you've got to picture this scene in your mind. Jerusalem is a crowded city. It's been turned now into a beehive of activity. And by this time, Jesus has already been beaten to a bloody pulp by a Roman scourging. According to Isaiah 52 and verse 14, it states prophetically there that Jesus was so badly disfigured that His countenance was beyond recognition. And so Jesus endured a tremendous beating that probably would have killed most men he had been carrying that horizontal cross beam, which we know in Latin was called the patibulum. And he was going down that Via Della Rosa. And we're told that the patibulum could weigh between 75 and 100 pounds. And you can imagine the terrible pain that is now coursing through Jesus' body as that roughly hewn wood is now being dug into the raw hamburger of His bloody back. And as you can imagine, this 
bloody spectacle of human cruelty that's parading down the streets. And Luke tells us that as Jesus and this Roman cohort are coming out of the city, that Simon is making his way in. And you can picture in your mind that Jesus stumbles on the way and the weight of the cross comes crashing down on Jesus' head. He's exhausted. He can go on no longer. Dehydration is setting in. And that's when you can imagine a Roman soldier whipping Jesus, kicking Jesus, telling Him to get up and and to keep going, but Jesus can go no longer. And so that Roman soldier starts scanning the crowd. And as he's looking out there, uh, that mob who's uh, spitting on Jesus and uh, throwing things at Jesus and calling Him all sorts of blasphemous names, he looks through the crowd and he sees a burly man who is able-bodied and he, he points to Simon. Philip Keller, in his book Rabboni, imaginatively narrates the scene of what happened next. He said this, There was the God of glory laying slumped in the dust of Jerusalem's filthy streets. Crumpled under the cross, Jesus was a revolting spectacle of blood and sweat and agony. The mob milling around Him yelled taunts and insults. Some spat on the Christ. Not only had He bore the weight of the cross, but even more intolerable was the weight of the world's wickedness now being thrust upon Him. Impatient that Jesus was slowing down the death march, a Roman soldier gave a brusque command and he grabbed the arm of Simon from the crowd. You! Take up the cross! But sir, I don't even know him, Simon might have objected. Carry the cross or be nailed to one like him, the Roman commanded. So Simon begrudgingly growled and balanced the timber against his shoulder and stepped out of the crowd and into the street, out of anonymity and into history. And as they trudged along, Simon's face pressed against the cross and was stained with Jesus' blood. He wrapped his arm around the blood-soaked shoulder of Jesus as they carried that heavy burden. And eventually along the way, their eyes met. Jesus did not say anything for the look of pure love in His eyes said it all. Think of it, friend, in a a single moment, Simon went from being a a spectator to being a participant. He didn't come that day looking for the cross, but the cross found him. Simon was not a volunteer. He was a conscript. He was commanded. He was impressed into service. Nobody in their right mind wanted anything to do with a cross, but for some reason, Simon was chosen out of that rabble that day. And as I think about that, how many of us have a testimony much like Simon? Uh, We were simply going about our everyday life. Uh, We wanted nothing to do with God. 
Uh, Jesus and the gospel was the furthest thing from our mind. Uh, maybe we had heard about Jesus as a youngster, or maybe somebody had taken us to Sunday school or VBS, but of our own volition, uh, we would have never darkened the door of a church, uh, but then something happened in your life. Uh, God pressed the pause button. Uh, God sent chaos into your life or a tragedy and your life was interrupted. And then all of a sudden you're impressed, you're drugged into a situation that you couldn't foresee. And God has jerked you from the routine. Uh, maybe you finally gave in to that pestering church member and you went to church and there uh, you found the message of the gospel being preached and the Holy Spirit sat down right beside of you. You saw your sin and you saw the Savior and you recognized He died for me. He took that cross for me. And all of a sudden you're arrested by the Spirit of God and you find yourself walking down an aisle and praying a prayer. There's so many out there just like Simon who didn't go looking for the cross, but the seeking Savior found them on the way of life. And their whole destiny was changed. I can remember as a kid uh, listening to a radio program called Unshackled. I don't know if any of you remember that. It was a great a radio program that had a narration and it always told the story of somebody who was a druggie or a, a somebody who was facing a depression or somebody who was a runaway. It always told testimonies of how God found people in their worst circumstances. And I can remember listening to that, riding down the road in my dad's old truck. And one day the broadcast was about a man named Mel Trotter. And I don't know if you've ever heard about him, but Mel Trotter was a man who started the Pacific Garden Mission and he gave his life to the Lord. But Mel was a guy like Simon. He wasn't looking for God. Uh, he didn't want to be saved. In fact, Mel was the son of a bartender uh, who had an endless supply of alcohol. Uh, Trotter went on to be a very lousy man and a very terrible father. He couldn't hold down a steady job. And because of his drinking and his gambling, uh, he was destroying his marriage and his family. Every time he lost a job, he would promise, he'd say, I'm going to get better. I'm going to clean up. I'm going to sober up. Don't leave me. Uh, but he never could break free from the chains of addiction. Uh, so debased and so enchained in sin uh, was Trotter that his young son uh, died of a sudden illness. And uh, he was so debased that he decided that he was going to steal the little tiny pair of shoes that his son was to be buried in because he was broke and he wanted one more shot of liquor. So he decided he was going to steal these shoes and take them and pawn them or sell them for whatever he could get so that he could get one more drink. Well, the story goes that uh, he was making his way barefoot down the snowy streets of Chicago one evening. He was headed to Lake Michigan. He was going to throw himself in. He was going to end it all but because life uh, had no hope and life had no meaning. And he got to the edge of where he was uh, going to turn off. But then he heard something. Something caught his attention. It was singing. It was somebody singing the gospel hymns. And he looked over and he saw there was a, a little mission with a chapel inside. And they were having a church service. And he thought, well, it's mighty cold. I might as well just go on in here and get warmed up. And he stumbled in half drunk into that service, sat down on the back. 
and a, a faithful minister started preaching the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he said, there on the back row, Jesus found Mel Trotter in his uh, drunkenness. He found him in the depths of sin. And he prayed, and he was gloriously saved that night. And he went on to do great and mighty things in the ministry of the Lord. None of us is safe from the hound of heaven. Uh, He pursues He interrupts. uh, He persuades. He convicts. Hey, He follows us down the alleyways and into the dark corners of life, nipping at our heels. Uh, He can keep you up in the middle of the night. He knows your thoughts. And you can't get away from from this uh, Holy Spirit. Uh, Simon, he didn't choose these circumstances. And neither do we. But here's the thing that I see. God can orchestrate events He can alter our schedule. He can number and order our steps so that we will intersect with Jesus and He'll meet us on the road of life even when we didn't want to or mean to. And so we see, number one, what I call the sudden predicament of the cross. And then also from Simon, I see number two, the shameful privilege of the cross. The shameful privilege I was reading after Spurgeon in preparation for this, and he makes an interesting note in one of his messages. Spurgeon says that the privilege of carrying Jesus' cross should have fallen to Peter. You'll remember that Peter made a promise to the Lord, Lord, I'll never leave you. I'll follow you to the very end. But because of Peter's denial, he was not there. And so Spurgeon makes the comment that God passed this privilege of helping the Lord carry the cross to Simon. And so as you see here, Simon becomes the first in a long line of millions who will then take up their cross and follow Christ. In fact, Simon does literally what God has called us to do daily. Look at what Jesus said in Luke 9.23. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So you think about this, as Simon trudged with Jesus, he becomes a partaker in the suffering of the Savior. His cloak became stained with Jesus' blood. All the insults that are hurled at Jesus are heard and received by Simon as well. He's counted among the condemned. He may have even received a lick or a blow from the Roman soldier as they went along the way. And because Simon, think about this, because Simon was in contact with the condemned, because he touched the blood of another, what that meant is now he was ceremonially unclean to participate in the Passover. To a Jew, there would have been no greater shame than that right there. And so think about this man. He's traveled 800 miles from his country to come observe Passover and then his whole schedule is interrupted to carry the cross of Jesus. It's a shameful privilege, isn't it? Simon, I think, challenges us to examine our lives and ask the question, have we committed to complete surrender to the Lord? Are we just a fair weather fan or are we a full-time follower? Are we part of the crowd or are we committed and all in? You see, the cross, it stands for denial. It stands for humiliation. And ultimately, it means death 
to the old self, death to sin and this world. Oh, it hates Jesus and it hates the message of the gospel. And if we live for Christ and if we decide to take up a cross, His shame becomes our shame. Oh, but there's also a great promise along with that. His glory, we partake in that glory as well. So there's a temporary suffering for an eternal gain. At the turn of the century, there was a, an evangelist by the name of George Bernard. He was in quite high demand across the Midwest. He held several revival meetings and uh, tent crusades and so on throughout the country. In 1912, George Bernard was in the middle of an evangelistic meeting when in the very most emotional part of his sermon, an angry rabble of drunks stood up and began accosting him. He was continually ridiculed and heckled by these drunks in the crowd. In fact, one man yelled out, The cross that you're preaching about is a crutch for weak people. Bernard felt so defeated and discouraged by that. He was so deeply troubled by that mocking that he thought afterward about what it meant to carry the cross. And he said that he went back to his room after that meeting and in his despondency and in his discouragement and his tears, he said the Holy Spirit gave him a few words. And here's what he wrote down. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. That's the shameful privilege of the cross and the sudden predicament of the cross. But then I also want you to see tonight what I call the saving power of the cross. The saving power of the cross. So imagine as they reached the top of that skull-shaped hill, a sigh of relief comes across Simon as he exhales and he throws that crossbeam down in the dust. And I imagine that Simon thinks about walking away, but he melts into the crowd and he lingers for just a minute to see what will happen to this man that he had strangely become attached to. And one minute turned into an hour and, and another hour turned into a, a whole afternoon. And you can understand that he probably lingered in the shadow of the cross. And if Simon stayed there, what do you think that he witnessed? Well, the Bible tells us some of the things that he would have seen. He would have heard the sayings first off. Simon would have heard the incredible words of Jesus from the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He would have heard Jesus say, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Maybe that would have turned his mind to Psalm 22 because that's a direct quotation from David's writings there. Could it be, maybe he thought, is Jesus really the fulfillment of that great prophecy? His hands and feet were pierced just as that passage predicted. 
He would have heard the sayings. He could have looked and seen the sinners on either side of Jesus. Oh yes, he would have heard the, the thieves as they ranted back and forth at each other as one cursed Jesus and then another became friendly with Jesus. He would have heard that confession of that one thief who said, Lord, remember me when you go into your kingdom. And then he would have heard Jesus' assurance of salvation. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Maybe he thought, how could a man dying on a cross make such a bold claim to salvation unless he really was the Son of God? He could have looked above Jesus' head and saw that placard, King of the Jews. He's starting to put it together. He looks at the sinners and he hears the sayings and then he experienced the signs of Calvary. Simon would have felt the ground quake under his feet. He would have seen the sky darken as God's Son now neared the moment of death. Matthew 27, 45, and 51 talks about those signs and how that earthquake actually rent the veil in the temple from top to bottom. And then lastly, he could have heard the pronouncement of the soldier Simon could have heard the exclamation of that Roman centurion who confessed, surely this is the Son of God. We don't know how it happened, but at some point I believe that the cumulative effect of all this turned Simon from a conscript into a convert. And you say, well, how do you know that preacher? Well, we have several clues in the New Testament that Simon believed. In fact, let me show you the breadcrumbs that God gives us. In Mark's telling of the crucifixion, Mark gives one interesting detail that sticks out. In Mark 15, 21, listen to what he says there. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country. Watch this. The father of Alexander and Rufus to carry His cross. Friend, let me ask you this question. Why would Mark mention Simon's sons by name unless his audience would have known who those boys were? We know that the Gospel of Mark was written in Rome sometime between 50 and 60 A.D. And so this was a Gospel that was really sent to the Roman church there. So what we can put together is apparently Rufus who was the son of Simon, was known. In fact, he was known by Paul and the church in Rome there because as Paul closes his letter in Romans chapter 16 and verse 13, look at what Paul says there. He says, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, watch this, who has been a mother to me as well. Are you beginning to get this? Are you beginning to see what happened? So Paul mentions Simon's wife. He mentions Rufus. And Simon's wife at some point took care of Paul. He said, she was like a mother to me. At some point during his travel, he met this precious family. And that's just God, isn't it? That God would use Simon to help Jesus carry the cross. And then later on down the road, he would use Miss Simon to help take care of God's apostle, Paul, to help carry the gospel out to the rest of the world. So you can begin to see the picture coming together. We have good evidence to believe that Simon was eventually converted to faith 
And that faith ends up possessing his family. And his family ends up becoming key members in the early church, especially there in Rome. And Simon, I believe, is just one small link in the golden chain of God's great providence that's tying everything together. And what seemed to be random, what seemed to be chance, was actually, number four, notice this, the sovereign plan of the cross. And now you can clearly see, notice with me the providential hand of God moving across the Scriptures and these lives. You see, what happened to look like an accidental cross at first was actually a divine appointment for Simon. It wasn't just chance that led Simon into the city at the same time that Jesus is carrying his cross out. God ordered Simon's steps because God is weaving a grand master plan, a sacred sovereign plan that only the Father and the Son knew about. And at the time when Jesus was at His weakest, and things seemed to be totally out of control, and chaos was reigning, and it seemed like the devil had an upper hand on the situation. God is quietly, invisibly working behind the scenes of this, and God has provided help. God provided help at just the right time. He said, I know my son's going to stumble there. He'll need help accomplishing the mission of taking the cross. So I'm sending Simon Simon, you've got an appointment. You've got an assignment to carry that cross because His blood's got to be shed. He's got to pay the penalty. He's got to hang and die for you, Simon, but also for the rest of the world. You see, friend, this was not an accidental cross. This was an appointment by God. And God transforms the life of this man, Simon, whose faith would go on to transform his family. And in the process of getting Simon wrapped up in this divine drama, God is also laying the groundwork for the next generation in the book of Acts. Because he says, okay, now I've got a plan to take care of Paul someday. And so you can begin to see how God is working visibly, powerfully, sovereignly, providentially, in all these seemingly random events. Speaking of the sovereign plan of the cross. Let me finish with this. In her book, The God Who Hung on the Cross, journalist Ellen Vaughn retells a gripping story of how the gospel came to a remote village in Cambodia. It was September 1999 and a missionary named Tai Singh traveled to northern Cambodia. He went to an isolated area that was untouched by the gospel. Most villagers in this part of this country were staunch Buddhists, or they worshipped ancestral spirits, or they were just flat-out atheists. Christianity was virtually unheard of in this country And as Ty went from one village to another, he had great difficulty and faced great persecution trying to establish a church. But the day came, and much to Ty's surprise, when he arrived in a small rural village, and the people warmly embraced him. They warmly submitted to the gospel message of Christ. As he preached, the people from this village came in droves in repentance. 
And it was almost, he said, as if the people had been primed in their hearts before he arrived to receive the gospel. When he began to talk and ask questions of the villagers about their openness to the gospel, he talked to an old woman who shuffled forward with stooped over limbs and a a back that was bent over. She grasped missionary Ty's hand and said, Son, you don't know this. She said, But we've been waiting on you for 20 years to get here. Then she began to tell the story of the mysterious God who hung on the cross. The old woman began to explain. She said it goes back to the 1970s when the Khmer Rouge, the brutal communist-led regime, started taking over Cambodia. They were destroying everything in their path. They were killing their own countrymen. The soldiers, she said, finally came to our little village. They immediately rounded up everybody. They forced us to start digging our own graves. She said, after we dug those first graves, we all began to prepare to die. We knelt down in front of those graves. Some started screaming to Buddha. Uh, Some started crying out to ancestral spirits to be saved. The old lady then explained, she said, but I started to cry for help from the name of a God that I did not know. But it was a story, she said, that my mother had told me about as a child. It was a story about a God-man who hung on a cross. She said, where my mother had heard about this, I do not know. But she said, in my desperation, I started crying out to the God who hung on a cross. And she said, surely if this God who hung on the cross knew suffering, then He would identify with my suffering and come to my rescue. She says, suddenly as I started to cry out, God who hung on the cross, rescue me. She said, there was an eerie hush that came over the rest of the people. She said they they stopped crying out to their local gods and and to Buddha and to all these uh, other spirits. And she said collectively in the village they all started for some unknown reason just parroting her and crying out to the God who hung on the cross. She said the wailing turned to crying. And she said then there was an eerie silence in the muggy jungle air. Slowly, as they dared to turn around to face their captors, they discovered to their amazement that the soldiers who were there to kill them had fled. She said, for whatever reason, that which we cannot explain, the soldiers just got up and left right as we started crying out for the God who hung on the cross to rescue us. And she's finished telling this story. She said, Ty, she said, ever since that day, Our whole village has been praying and we've been waiting for somebody to come and tell us about the God who died on the cross. She said, and you have walked into our village not by accident, but God brought you here so we could hear about His precious Jesus who hung on the cross. Oh friend, as I think about this whole scene, When you decide to take up the cross of Jesus, oh, you never know where the path might lead you. You never know how He might use your life for His glory. And 
when you make that decision to step out of the crowd and say, I'll take up my cross and I'll follow Jesus. There's no telling how He might use you, how far, how far you might go, or the things He might do in your life. Oh, Simon. Simon's whole life, his whole family was changed that day that he went from being a conscript to being a convert. Friend, if you don't know this precious Jesus, if you've never been to Calvary, figuratively I mean, if you've never repented of your sin, if you've never trusted in Jesus as your Savior, it's time. Nobody knows the day or the hour that He might return. Nobody knows when their life may end. He went to the cross taking your sin and your shame. He shed every precious ruby red drop of blood for you and for me so that we could be forgiven. So that we could have eternal life. So that we could be given meaning and purpose. So that we could live for Him. Not waste our lives in sin and self. And so I implore you, I challenge you to think about that cross. If you don't know Jesus... He's not your Lord and Savior. I'm going to lead you in a prayer. You can pray right there where you are in the comfort of your home. You can confess your sin. You can trust in Jesus as Lord right now. So if you need Jesus, I'm asking you to bow your head right now. I'm asking you to cry out to Him like this. Lord, I know I'm a sinner. But I believe, Lord, that You came in the person of Your Son. I thank You, Jesus, that You died in my place. I thank You, Lord, that You shed Your blood for me. I believe that You died. I believe that You rose again on the third day. I pray, God, that You would forgive me of my sin. Have mercy on me, O God, for I'm a sinner. Save me. Cleanse me. Make me Yours today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.